This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. Hi, I'm Jeff Gibbard, the world's most handsome social media and content marketing strategist and real-life superhero. And this is my podcast, Shareable. Every week, I get the opportunity to speak with someone brilliant, including entrepreneurs, academics, authors, speakers, researchers, and more. Come along with me as we dig deeply into their unique story of success, including their highest of highs and often their lowest of lows. These episodes are powered by my curiosity about the critical role that relationships and technology play in shaping the course of our lives. These episodes aren't sales pitches. These episodes aren't the standard book tour. These episodes are just shareable. Before we get to the episode, I just wanted to let you know about an amazing free resource that you should be taking advantage of. I ran my own agency for seven years, and I know that as a freelancer, entrepreneur, or small business, you want to feel confident that you have all of the skills you need to grow your business, lead your team, and close the sale. But I also know that sometimes, no matter how hard you try, it seems like you can't get ahead. You try to learn how to be a better leader only to find yourself winging it. You know that you have a unique story to tell, but your marketing materials aren't telling it. And the things you need to learn are spread out all over the place, so it can be challenging to know where to even start. And it's for all of these reasons that I created the Superhero Institute. The Superhero Institute is a personal and professional development platform with curated resources, lessons, and strategies to unlock unlimited growth potential and teach you specific superhuman abilities. Your free membership comes with access to the one-of-a-kind superhuman framework, along with a structured approach designed to give freelancers and small businesses the tools for professional growth. Lead your team, tell your story, and close that business. Commit yourself to continual growing, to consistently expanding your skills, and constantly deepening your understanding. It's time that you get more done than you ever have before, and before long, you'll realize that you're just getting started. Become the superhero you were meant to be. Join today for free at superheroinstitute.org. Welcome back to Shareable. My name is Jeff Gibbard. I'm your host. You are familiar with me, but the guest I have with me today is Allison Schaefer. She is a worldwide renowned parenting expert and my go-to resource anytime I have a question about parenting, which I'm planning to have a lot more of in the uh, upcoming months. Uh, but for right now, I'm, I'm in pre-parenting phase. Um, Allison has written multiple books on the topic of parenting. Uh, she's absolutely the, the person to listen to. She's got a great YouTube channel full of awesome stuff, but uh, I'm going to let you fill in the rest of the blanks for anything that I missed or any specifics you want to get into. Allison? Welcome to Shareable. Thanks so much for having me on, Jeff. Yes, I also have a, a private practice. Uh, so I see families in the capacity of being a family counselor, which is lovely. That keeps me grounded in what's going on with real families. Uh, and uh, have my own two girls. They're my probably my biggest credentialing factor. <laughs> Actually, they're 24 and 25 and good and launched and educated and stayed out of jail. No teen pregnancies. We did. We did. We done good. We've done okay. good. <laughs> well, and you're also uh, a, uh, a public speaker that is booked all over to talk about parenting and is brought in as the expert on the subject. Yeah. I mean, some people laugh at the topic. Can you really be a parenting expert? I mean, what kind of title is that? Um, you know, it, it's, it's a challenge. The reason why I speak internationally is that my training, um, this is a little bit of an origin story here for your listeners. So 
<laughs> so I'm the third generation in my family uh, to, to teach parent education workshops, to, to teach classes. And um, my family's involvement uh, came because my uh, grandmother was friends with um, and worked with a, a guy named Rudolf Drakers. So Rudolf Drakers um, wrote a book called Children, the Challenge. And some of the older leaders that are listening to your podcast are going, I know that book. Um, it, it really was, a, a, the uh, Library of Congress said it was one of the most influential parenting books of the century. And um, he was a student protege of Alfred Adler. So I'm an Adlerian uh, trained practitioner and I specialize in Adlerian psychology. And so my grandmother, my grandfather founded the Alfred Adler Institute here in Toronto where I got my master's degree. And so I have spoken all over the world um, because the world is looking for Adlerian content. And what I mean by that is um, countries that are... Um, under oppressive regimes that finally um, overthrow their dictatorships or their governments and win democracy for themselves. They're very hungry for how to organize themselves uh, democratically, and they don't want to raise their kids in the, uh, the iron-fisted uh, style of parenting. They, they want a spread of democracy in their families. And they have no information in their cultures. Often that information was blocked from them. So the rights to my books have been sold mostly in countries that have um, overcome and they want me to speak and they want to learn. And one of my colleagues just trained 50,000 parent educators in China. Um, you know, we've got a little, little uh, laissez-faire more relaxed, I guess, about our parenting here in North America because we've had so-called democracy for a, for a long time, but countries new to it are really thirsty for this information. Got it. So I wanted to actually start on the idea of, you know, whether or not you had sort of an overarching guiding parenting philosophy. And it sounds like it's steeped in a rich tradition of, um, you know, parenting uh, guidance and knowledge. Can you go into a little bit more about like, what is that overarching philosophy? Like, what is it rooted mm -hmm. in? And, and sure. give me, cause I also don't really know the various, um, I guess like philosophical ideologies of parenting advice, but like, you know, I would think of like positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. Like those are the kind of places where my mind would sort of go, like, is it okay to spank your child? Um, should you be encouraging them and tell them they can be anything they want to be like, so, so what is, I guess, if you could tell me a little bit about your philosophy and then kind of where that fits maybe in the, the, the world of parenting type of advice. Great question. Um, so typically if you are talking about parenting slash leadership, uh, I mean, I think most of the people out there would recognize that when we first started studying leadership through the military and Kurt Lewin had all those great experiments on the autocratic versus the authoritarian versus the laissez-faire style or whatever Lewin used as his terminology. And in parenting, we see the same thing um, where um, it was Baumrin who was the big researcher. And so she, again, talks about three types of parents being you know, autocratic uh, authoritarian or laissez-faire. And uh, in, those are kind of three categories um, that, we, that, that are recognized. The type that I've been trained under would fall under that middle one, that firm and friendly um, style. So neither a dictatorship uh, nor being a doormat and, and, and walked over. Um, and, but, but the Adlerian piece to that is even richer in that what Adler, um, and again, I'll just put the pause button here for so people know, Carl Jung, Sigmund Freud, and Alfred Adler were all three um, 
sparring partners in Vienna at the turn of the century. And they all worked together. They all you know, wrote the same journals. They all worked in the psychoanalytic. And then they, they had disagreements and they split and did different things. But Adler's particular interest was in social equality and cooperation. And he specifically worked with the school systems and families in this regard. And he wrote a robust system. So that's really different. If you have, most of us, even here in North America, have been raised and have, we have a cultural tradition in this society um, to raise kids to be obedient. Do as I say, because I say so. Mind my will. And um, Adler, uh, you know, was even a hundred years ago saying no human being likes to be under somebody else's thumb. And um, that if we are, our goal should really be to win a child's cooperation rather than forcing their compliance. And a lot of people think that's not possible, but the truth is, evolutionarily, we are wired to be cooperative organisms, right? We, we, are, we are a collective species. We live in colonies. That's our mental health is based on knowing that we belong. And so there are ways, and, and other co more collectivist cultures, um, you know, at first indigenous people, people that live much more closer to that, they're very good at winning cooperation. But we come from this history of imperialism and monarchies and colonialism, and we want power and authority at the top and to rule people. And uh, so that has trickled down to families. And, um, and it, it doesn't work in the long run when our end goal is, is cooperation. And to the point of leadership in the future, look at the workplace. We're, you know, we're not, we're not raising kids to join assembly lines anymore. We're, we're raising kids to actually be creative, to, to work in teams, to be collaborative. And so they need that early training in, in our family life. So that's a real change of direction. And it means there's a real change of parenting discipline protocols that go with it. And I think this is why parents are very confused because mostly they kind of agreed with the idea, but rather than learning the new tools, most of them just went to the other extreme, tried to be respectful, tried to be kind, and then completely got walked on by their kids. <laughs> and, and when it looked like the kids had too much power and the kids were abusing the parents of the family, everybody said, go back to the old way. So it's think of it as being like a teeter totter or, or um, being in a, say a slave uh, a, um, oppressed oppressor relationship, slave tyrant relationship. All we've done is flipped who's, who's controlling who. So parents used to control kids. Now we have kids controlling parents and neither of those are tolerable or healthy, respectful relationships. In my opinion, I'm trying to help parents um, create a sense of mutual respect in the family and then use strong leadership um, healthy leadership to guide kids towards pro-social cooperative behaviors. It's so interesting that you're the way that you framed all this, because what's racing through my mind is how this maps on in so many different areas of life right now. And that makes sense because we're all at one point, we're children, right? And we were raised by certain types of leaders in our homes and everything. And it's, it's no shock that we have, um, the way you described it is so interesting because it, it mirrors on to like what I feel like my experience in business has been that there's like the, the authoritarian, tyrannical, like compliance type person, or there's the one that doesn't want to be that kind of boss. So instead goes the other way, then their employees don't respect them. And like kind of threading that needle to the middle ground is such a difficult thing to do. And then you also see it in politics, right? And it, it all is this sort of outgrowth of the fact that at one point we were all children and we all learned a certain way. And then we either reacted to it one way or another and threading that needle down the middle is like, it, it seems like that would be a very rare 
occurrence based on, I, I don't know how many people, you know, so you said 50,000 uh, child educators were recently trained uh, by you and your team. But I, I wonder how much of this is actually getting out into the world because it feels like if you're the type that's in that kind of middle ground of like kind yet firm, you're often operating in a world of either like people that are, that are just total, you can walk all over them or people who are just absolute tyrants. Um, it, it's just crazy because I'm seeing it map across everything in our culture. Absolutely. So I would say that we're, um, because there's a lot of parenting programs, a lot of parent education that you can get that falls in that middle ground, the firm but friendly, but Adler unique to the other theories adds even more. And so he talks a lot about two, two differentiators. One is he talks about what you just mentioned that we all were children at one point that under the age of about five, um, our, that's when our kind of core personality is, is developed and set not to freak everyone out if they've got like a seven year old, who's, (laughs) (laughs) but um, so sort of from zero to five, that's when a a child needs to um, make some, uh, rubric of belief about how the world works and how they fit in it. And of course, by the time you're five, you know, you're a great observer, but you've got a pretty lousy ability to deduce anything. So we, from, from about four or five to about 10, we test our hypothesis looking for validation that our beliefs are, are right. And of course it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because that's how the brain works. And so by 10, we have, we're pretty, pretty baked in our thinking. And, and unless you get some therapy or have a trauma or something like you're pretty much who you're going to be from, from 10 on, you can function higher or lower and change, but um, takes a little bit more work if you want to really rewire yourself. So those early years are, are, are quite important. And each of us do, do come to every relationship, whether it's parenting or our leadership in the workplace, where we have beliefs about ourselves, about people and how we orient ourselves around it. And some of that can really create relationship problems Um, Because it's out of our awareness. We just think everyone thinks like that because we think it's a capital T truth. So we have blind spots. So, you know, we have to start to understand where are those blind spots and be curious about fellow people to say, you know, if I was that person in that childhood with those siblings, with those parents, you know, maybe I might come to this conclusion too. What, What would have to be true for that person to make this behavior make sense? So I'm always being very curious Um, So there's the private logic piece that Adler brings to the table. And then the other big piece, which really goes against the grain from what we learn in, um, in, in training. And and I, this is why I love talking to nurses and doctors and teachers, because they tend to be frontline deliverers of help and advice to parents that are frustrated. You know, it's going to, they're going to go to their pediatrician. The teacher at the door is going to say, your kid won't sit still in class or whatever. And they're not trained in this. They, They get woefully little training in any parenting, frankly. But what is missing from so many of the other parenting pieces is Adler believed in something called teleology. Teleology means that behavior is goal-directed, that we behave in a way in order to make something occur in the future. Um, so I will, I will give you a simple um, differentiator. So Freud, Freud was um, believed in drive theory, you know, the hunger drive, the sex drive. And, and we, as a, mostly of us think, we think in drive mentality. So um, to make this uh, uh, an easier explanation, do you have a dog, Jeff? I do. I do. Okay. So if your dog is sitting next to its food bowl and it starts barking, Freud would say the hunger drive is causing the dog to bark. And Adler said, no, 
the dog knows that if it barks, you'll go get the kibble bag and dump some kibble in it so he can eat. He's acting in a way to make a future occurrence happen. Does this make, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. I'm like just trying to like chew on that because it's like I can see both points of view there. Um, and I'm not I like I'm trying to decide whether it's an either or or if it's a both or if it's yeah, that's that's a real that's a headspace to be in, man, to think about that. Yeah. So when you have a child and um they just um start picking all the leaves off the ficus plant in the living room, the first time they're doing it, they're just exploring their world. And that's what kids are supposed to do. They learn by doing. But if you say, no, 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 don't hurt the plant, leave the plant alone. And every time you turn your back, your kid goes over to that ficus plant and starts pulling the leaves off. Likely this behavior happened repeatedly is because the child knows if I go pick off those leaves, you'll come over and tell me don't do that. And so the child's goal is actually to engage you in it. In it. So we call this undue attention seeking behavior. Um, you know, the kid who is refusing to put their coat on, um, you know, what is the, you know, when it's a cold day and you're holding the coat and they're sitting there shivering and they refuse to put their coat on, even though they're cold, what's the usefulness of that? What's the child's goal? Well, that goal is about power, a mistaken bid for power with them saying, I will not, I will not be told what to do. You can't order me around even if I have to freeze because I am ego bound to be self-determined and I won't follow your orders. Um, and so we have the mistaken uh, goal of power. We also have revenge. Um, kids who, you know, you, you put them in a timeout and then when they get to their bedroom, they rip all the books off their bookshelf and ter- terrorize their room. You know, this is a tit for tat. The goal is, is to revenge against you. I'm going to hurt you as you have hurt me. Um, the fourth is avoidance. Uh, or a learned helplessness, hopelessness. And then the fifth goal that, that parents have to know about is um, uh, happens only in the teen years. And that is um, thrill seeking. Uh, because of course, we got all these dopamine receptors going crazy as kids go through adolescence. So those are five that for, for raising kids. But when I work with clients in my private practice, I'm not looking just so specifically. That's like an easy parlor game to try to help parents understand these concepts. But if I'm working with adults, there could, uh, it's just whatever the goal might be. It could be much more, it could be cut more, more finely than this. So if you're a leader and you've got an employee who's acting in a certain way and you say to yourself, why does my employee keep coming in late? Or why does my employee refuse to fill in that report? Or why does my re- employee have to constantly remind me that he's the one that did the work on the project? And if you ask it through the lens of how could that person benefit from that behavior, behavior? What utility do they, do they serve to get from that? How could that possibly be moving them to a perception of being in a a felt plus a a better position? Um, That gives you an interesting set of questions, which you you will start to understand what might be um, their part of their behavior, the motivation, not so much the drive, not the cause of their behavior, but how it serves to prove, to prove helpful in the way they see the world? Uh, one, I'm definitely a little freaked out right now. <laughs> I feel like it's like your golf swing. I don't know if you play golf, but like the more you learn about your golf swing, the more difficult your golf swing becomes because there's like 57 <laughs> movements or something like that. And I'm like yeah. thinking about like engaging with my my soon-to-be-born child and like all of the different mechanics I'm thinking about. The, the question that I kind of came to mind here is that um, – 
when I think about leadership and I think about engaging with clients and I think about having like intense, deep discussions about things, maybe correcting behavior or having conversations about goals and aspirations and things like that, that doesn't seem all that complex to me relative to the idea of having those sorts of conversations or trying to understand the goals of children because it would seem to me that adults can communicate a lot more effectively about what what is going on. Whereas kids, I feel like sometimes there may be this kind of like, I don't know why I'm doing it. And you're trying to piecemeal it to get, am I, am I right? Am I on track with that or wrong? Cause it would seem to me like kids would be more complex because they're less developed in their understanding of why they have certain motivations, behaviors versus adults where you can kind of talk through it. But at the same time, it seems like there are less layers for children than there may be for adults where there could be years of trauma, there could be all sorts of different things. So, so which is it? Is it, is it more difficult to identify the goal-seeking behavior of children or adults? What do you kind of weigh in on that? I would say, well, first of all, for children, for sure, it's pre-conscious. Pre-conscious meaning you can make it conscious to the child. It's one of the therapeutic interventions we do with kids. Um, and, and, and in fact, when you actually say, could it be, could it be that one of the reasons why you like to pick all the leaves off the ficus plants is because you like to, to get mommy busy with you. You'd like her to stop being in the kitchen and paying attention to your brother. Do you like her to come spend more time with you? And you'll see their face. There's something called the recognition reflex. And it literally is like this little glimmer that goes on. And at that moment, it is moving from the pre-conscious brain to the conscious part of the brain where now they can actually oh yeah, I am making mischief. I, I, I get it. Um, and so now they can work with it in a conscious way. As with adults, there's a lot of stuff that we might be aware that we're doing. Yeah. You know, and maybe we're not proud of it. Um, but there's also parts that are for sure also pre-conscious. Um, and I, I, I see that a lot in, um, again, when we work with an adult client and they're having a current um, relationship issue at, at work with, with somebody, um, I might ask them something like, um, you know, that feeling you get when your um, subordinate comes in and criticizes your leadership skills or something. Um, when was the first time in your life you had a feeling like that? And they might say, oh, well, I have this early recollection from my childhood, this time when um, I was presenting in the class and I got embarrassed because the teacher shamed me, you know, or whatever. It'll bring back some other memory. And so, you know, usually those memories are stored and kept or, or, or kept bringing forward because we're saying, never let that happen again, or I need to protect myself in some way, or I've learned something about life that I find intolerable and I'm going to protect that that never happens. And we forget about the story. They never even thought about the story, you know, until we asked them to, to connect the dots. And then they realized, boy, you know what? Here I am, this grown person with all these greater maturities in so many other ways. But now my eyes are open to this idea that I kind of have this little trigger that started in childhood. And I'm more reactive rather than responsive when I get into these patterns that remind me subconsciously of things from my childhood. So once you do the work and you can kind of recognize when you're being triggered, then you can unpack it and have time to think about what would be a better response given you recognize that it's old material that's kind of putting you on edge and get on with having a healthier dialogue with that subordinate who's criticizing you. Yeah, that all makes perfect sense. And, and in a lot of the conversations where I'm dealing with other people in business and, you know, adults, let's say, 
adults, air quotes, um, I feel like it's a lot easier to give them the benefit of the doubt and try and understand where they're coming from or maybe what things have happened to them or, you know, just try and unpack it and, and work with them through it in a way that, you know, is about finding a, a result that's, you know, mutually beneficial or whatever. When I think about the idea of working with children, like, because the only lens that I can really think about parenthood through at this point is leadership and also my own experience of having parents, right? And in fact, in the beginning of my book, one of the first things I talk about, it's a book on leadership. One of the first things I talk about is my two different leadership environments, uh, my mom's house and my dad's house. Um, when they split when I was like 11 or whatever, um, it was two very, very different environments. And um, so when I think about this conversation and I'm, I'm looking at it, leadership makes sense to me. When I think about kids, the one thing that I, I kind of get wrapped up in, and hopefully you can clarify it for me, is like to what extent can you take those pre-conscious ideas or pre-conscious actions and bring them to the conscious forefront in the sense of like, um, how deep of a conversation do you think you can actually have with kids throughout their life before they hit that kind of like point of like 25 where your brain is like fully developed? Like, is it a futile effort to kind of really expand the the conversation or there is there sort of like a, a light version of your example I thought was really, really good about like, um, you know, do you think it's maybe this and then the recognition phase happens? Like, I guess the, the question is, is like, to what extent, like, how deep can you go with children uh, to get them to understand how their behaviors are playing out and why? Yeah, I didn't spend a lot of time doing goal identifying to my kids, by the way. You know, that's, I wouldn't say that's like a go-to tool. Okay. Um, kids um, learn through experience. So it's not so much about the verbal, let me explain what just happened there and from a psychological perspective so that you understand the psychodynamic purposes you know, that are impacting our family. I would just conduct the family knowing that um, modeling is hugely important. And so think you about your- That means modeling? Modeling meaning your kids imitate you so much more than you know. Got it. Okay. Um, right. So you meant like you know, financial modeling type modeling, like, Oh, build out a, a thing for them to look at <laughs> okay, modeling, meaning like you're, you're sort of being a role model, model. Uh, being, yes, yes. Being a role model. And, and again, you'll see this just in um, uh, like, why do, why, why is it that all children will learn their mother tongue unless they have brain damage, they want to communicate. They want to talk with you. They want to engage with you. Why do children all learn to walk unless they have a spinal cord injury or a brain tumor because we're bipedal and they want to get up off their feet and walk around like everybody else. And why do kids play with little kitchen sets and pick up things? Why do they want to get on your phone? Why do babies grab the food off your plate when they're eating pablum and they want your pork chop? They, they so want to grow up and be like you. It's like, they're like the little tadpole and they're looking up and they're saying, you know, yeah, but you're the frog. What is it like to be the final future version of myself? That is wired in them to want to grow and develop. And you represent what the final completed version of the species looks like. So I would say, you know, be very mindful of, of how you are, you know, are you living the life that you would wish for your kids? And so I find a lot of people just stop doing everything else to just focus on raising their kids. And then these kids, they don't see you as a, somebody who um, has friends that, that inter engages with neighbors, that volunteers for nonprofits because they put their life on hold and they just sit on the floor and play with their kid. Well, then you get a kid who says, oh, I think I understand adults. They're supposed to always play with me. 
And then you drop, try to drop these kids at a daycare or, you know, junior kindergarten, and they don't know how to function in a group because they're used to being the center of the universe. And they, they have come to believe in the first four years of life, the world is all revolved around pleasing me. And so, you, you know, you want to model, like we, we don't interrupt, we take turns, you know, you know, now it's mommy's time to try. Now we have to do uh, chores. We need to clean up. That's what everybody does. That's not just for the nanny and the cleaning people. That's you need to help too. So all the things that your kids need to learn, they need to participate in, but we largely isolate kids into this little bubble and, um, and just play with them or enrich them. And, you know, and we kind of twist our life like a pretzel to, to raise them. And we don't really do all our regular adult stuff that, that they should be watching us do, including being very wonderfully in a wonderful relationship with whoever we're co-parenting with. They're watching your relationship with the other adult in your house. Like there's no tomorrow. So if, if you haven't figured out how to be, cooperative, if you have power struggles between you, if you use sarcasm and disrespect, that's what your child is learning about relationships. Oh man, we're, we're going to be raising a little unicorn then. (laughs) (laughs) We're just like adorable with one another. So that's awesome. She can have stickers all over her. Well, um, kind of in both the parenting and the leadership conversation, I want to talk a little bit about, um, kind of like how you set those boundaries. Cause it sounds like kind of like first, the first line of defense is like, let's have a conversation about this and let's kind of set what the boundaries are and then we'll kind of move forward together. Right. Like it's, it's a, it's a conversation meant to kind of get you on the same page and move forward. Right. But kids sometimes are just unreasonable, crazy little monsters. And sometimes they're like bright and beautiful little angels, but, and the same thing is true in work, right? When we have people on our team, some of them are going to be like gung ho, excited, want to work. They come, uh, to the office and they just, you know, crush whatever's on their plate and they're really motivated to like win for the company. And other times there's people that are subversive or that have issues or just don't do their work or whatever. And there's this kind of ongoing debate between whether or not there should be kind of the fear of punishment versus the anticipation of reward and how to balance those two things if either of those are necessary. So speaking boo, of- Boo, boo. I don't- <laughs> I mean, we now have so much research on um, the fallacy of punishment and rewards uh-huh. um, that it's it, still it, the most prevalent conversation, though. So as as I've seen, there's like, well, do we enforce punishment or do we try a carrot on the stick? So that's still the conversation. So how do that, we? That's still to to, to to the to the point of that is the tradition that comes from that external control autocratic modality of make people mind your will, which sort of says, I really don't have high trust and faith in people to, to do right, do good. We haven't thought about other ways to, to motivate them or win them over. And so like a lot of parents and I'm sure people at work say like, if I don't, if they don't feel the pain, if they don't suffer, how will they learn? And in fact, we know that in the minute that you start being punitive and people start suffering, it actually uh, deters learning. And uh, and the same when you motivate, when you when you have to create rewards, it it actually reduces the our feeling of pride. Our mo- it might lift the motivation for a little while, but in the end, it, it will diminish overall motivation um that, that we kind of don't have this belief that uh, that work could just be enjoyable for work's sakes and you know once we get past actually being a- appropriately remunerated so that nobody feels you know that they're being taken advantage of um you know we don't need these extra things 
there's, I, I think of the, the, I use this in my workshops. I talk about like the women that used to get together at the church to stuff the newsletters every Wednesday and they volunteered their time. And when they said, ladies, you know, you're in here doing this work every week for an hour, we should at least pay you minimum wage. And as soon as they started paying the ladies for their volunteer work, they started not showing up. They started complaining. They weren't being treated fairly. It was like, you know, it, it's the same with if you're a sex worker, sex is really great until someone starts to pay you for it. And you certainly wouldn't lean over to your wife and say, Hey, listen, I know you're not in the mood, but for 50 bucks, would you, you know, <laughs> like that would, you, it, it clearly is so rude. It, it clearly is, is not the point of it, you know? Um, and so to win, you know, if you want to do it, try nibbling my neck, <laughs> don't give me money. Um, so what can we do to make the culture of our workplace is somewhere where people feel valued, feel wanted, get excited about the projects, feel they're making a contribution like that. We, you gotta work, start at that level. Not like, you know, we're going to, we're going to bonus you out. People hit the bonuses and then, you know, they hear this all the time. They win prestigious awards and then they say, yeah, I'm done with architecture. I've gone, I've gone as high as I can go. I'm going to do something else or whatever. It, it works to a certain level, but there, there's so many caveats that make it backfire. It's the same with children. You might get them to pee in the potty for a smarty, but after a while they'll learn why, why pee the whole pee? I'll only let half out and then I can get two Smarties by letting the other pee out in 15 minutes. They will start to feel like you're working them over. So I, I totally get it in the business context. And in fact, most of my book, The Lovable Leader, is about kind of trying to find this way where there isn't a need for punishment or reward, but it's rather about getting alignment and two people can find, you know, essentially where the, the quote unquote boss or the leader is understanding what the person is looking for and what's important to them and essentially helps them to get there and helps them grow. And then at the same time, the employee or, or person who's um, kind of lower in the hierarchy or, or kind of reports to whoever the manager or leader um, understands like kind of what the organization is about and how all of those goals align and, and everything's on the same page. So that makes sense. But in most organizations, and I'm not going to say every organization, but in most organizations, you don't have a situation where when somebody doesn't turn in their report and you call them on it and have a conversation that they throw a full-on freaking tantrum, start stamping their feet, losing their mind. And I'm sure that there's ways as in early parenting to kind of reduce the likelihood of that behavior. But I think every parent is probably going to encounter situations in which it's like, this is just completely out of control. How do you then deal with it when we're not dealing with a kind of reasonable individual where there's a, a, a very you know, logical conversation that could happen, a conversation about goals and cooperation, all that. But we're just dealing with like a full-on meltdown. Maybe the kid's too tired or the you know, kid's hungry or whatever, hasn't had enough sleep, whatever it is. How do you deal with those situations? Yeah. Um, so um, it, we do, I have a whole workshop coming up actually on emotional uh, regulation, self-regulation, how people deal with their, with their anger and their meltdowns. Um, but what we know about anger in, in that particular case, the meltdown is that it's usually there's an activating event. There's a trigger. So you've said no to the chocolate bar at the checkout counter at the grocery store. It's like an iconic one, right? So the kid starts to have a meltdown because you won't get them the chocolate bar. So the activating event is the refusal of the chocolate bar. So that's A. B, because we're A, B, C. B is what's the belief system. And again, this goes to this. Our minds are always trying to come up with rules for how the world works. And C is the consequenting emotion, which is that anger, the protest, the, the full-on meltdown. So, but somewhere in that belief system, um, parents have it and children have it, but they'll have something like, you know, um, 
you know, I should always get what I want or, um, you know, the, the world is here to cater to me or could be something along that, but it's, it's going to have something really rigid in it. Like always, never must should, you know, you, these, these thinking styles get us into trouble because they're kind of absolutistic. Right. And we need to soften those a little bit, but see is the, the interesting thing about the C, the consequent emotion is that anger is about, is called the fighting emotion. It happens second fighting. People get angry, whether it's in the workplace or with their kids or kids to parents, anger comes after a person feels in some way one down. You, you, you feel demeaned. You feel like you've been violated, that your rights have been tromped on. Um, you know, you've been mishandled in some way now, but that's a perception, right? Cause if you're the parent, you're like, I haven't mistreated you, but if we can get into the subjective mind of the child, a lot of the times the reason is kids don't know how to get their way. Um, and they know last time when I had a meltdown, you caved because a lot of parents cave and they say, fine, fine. Just don't, don't embarrass me here. Just take the chocolate bar. And we're so random in our, our rules that the reason why the kid feels undermined is they don't understand. They just think you're the authority. And sometimes you say yes. And sometimes you say no, and you're just the gatekeeper to my sugar and you won't give it to me. So you don't like me today. What did I do wrong? You know, this is all the thoughts that are going on in yeah. their head. But they can't verbalize it. So what they do is they protest. They, they say, I, this, this is unfair. And they show it with the meltdown, the tears, the crying, the, the, the hissy fit, the punching, biting, or whatever. And a lot of times they will actually end up getting what they want, reach their goal, get the, get the chocolate bar. Um, and so I would for sure just um, not give them the chocolate bar. That's the first thing. I never let the child reach the goal if they use an inappropriate means to get there. So I wouldn't give them the chocolate bar, but I would just sue them. And I would just, again, sort of do that sort of self-talk. I can tell you feel really mad at me. You don't like how this situation is going. You think this, I'm not handling this well. We need to talk about the family rules around chocolate bars so that we get clearer on that. And then I would have what's called a family meeting. And just, just like you have meetings in the workplace, when you invite your employees and the people that work on a team to have a voice, they're much more likely to um, be willing to live within whatever agreements and rules that you're setting up. So if you can get by and, hey, these reports are due every Friday, is that enough time? People don't seem to be doing them. What's going on with the reports that I need to understand? Because we all got to solve this together. Just, you, you, you might still end up coming up with the end result of they have to be in every Friday, but having been asked, having care and compassion about how people are struggling with it or, you know, or why they're not delivering their part of the agreement is enough to, again, win them over, to feel respected, to not feel one down, to, to feel valued, um, to have compassion with the greater system that might be um, your requirement for why these darn reports are due anyways. So, um, so we do the same in the family. So you always have a say, but you don't necessarily get your way in a democracy. You know, what's really awesome about this is that there's been a conversation floating around lately uh, about um, should leaders think of their teams as a family? And I think you just, I don't know if you've ever made this point intentionally, but I think you just made the best point ever for why your team actually is a family. And it's not necessarily because you want to look at them as your like sons, mothers, daughters, whatever, but more that the same dynamics are in play in if you want to be an effective parent or you want to be an effective sibling or you want to be an effective anybody in that family unit, that the ways that you go about reaching agreement are the same way that you probably would in an effective situation in a team where you're going to listen to one another. You're going to try and understand what the kind of the rules of the organization are, the family being the organization here um, and, and kind of try to work things out and understand one another. 
and build and build relationships. And again, it's not to it's not to say that maybe they think the word family sounds too intimate in their mind, um, but I think of it as um, the difference in approach. If if um, if you have a neighbor, for example, and they play their music really loud, would your first response be to call the police because it's a noise violation? You you have the right to actually have the police knock on their door and say, turn down the stereo. Your neighbors have complained. Your party is too loud. Or you could actually knock on your neighbor's door and say, Hey, it looks like you guys are having a really great time over here. I, I don't mean to be a buzzkill or whatever, but like, I got a report in the morning and like, how long do you think this party's going to go? You know, c- c- can you move the stereo to the basement or so? I just got to get a good night's sleep. Or maybe the neighbor says, Oh dude, I didn't, I didn't know. I'll turn it down or let me pay for you to go to a hotel or sure. We'll turn it down. If you have to go right to calling the police, you're likely to not be creating goodwill. So then when your tree is going over their fence and dropping nuts in their pool, do you think they're going to say, Hey, could you trim your tree? Or do you think they're going to like, you know, call this chop off your branches that are crossing their, their line. I mean, how much of a war do you want to have with the people around you? So I'm, I'm saying be neighborly. I'm saying let's build relationships where we care for one another, the people that we care with at work, the people we care with in our neighborhoods. I mean, and of course, if you're Buddhist, you grow that until you have a, open-heartedness to everybody on the planet, we hope. But yes, so so when you are in caring relationships and you have dialogues instead of monologues and you understand and you see things from other people's perspectives, that care is, that the care and concern for your fellow man, Adler called it social interest. When you increase people's social interest and you care about your fellow man, you're much more likely to work harder to, to help preserve things that will help them. So you're going to work a little harder to get that report in. You're going to be more compassionate when people have to work on the weekend because the big reports due on Monday and it's like a one-time thing. And, um, you know, and then be appreciated for, for helping out, even though you missed your kid's birthday party or whatever it is. So I, I, I don't, if the word family feels offensive, I, I, it maybe it's because they hold family too precious and they don't want the workplace to be that huggy, but, um, but it's still about just building relationships so that we care for one another. I think that it's typically the whole, like, this isn't personal, it's business sort of thing, kind of encroaching in and, and people not wanting to see the other person like they see family, which is like as a human being with, you know, flaws and things that they're good at, et cetera. Um, so as far as like the process from a parenting standpoint, and I'm going to, I'm going to use this analogy because you, you brought in the dog earlier. <laughs> bringing in the dog down. I hate, I know that parents hate when you compare the dogs and the kids, but um, my dog is super well-behaved. She's like nine. Um, and it, it took probably about a year and a half or two years before she kind of got like, here's how we operate here in this home. Here's kind of our rules. She understood the pack order. All of a sudden she was real cool. She mostly like, it was, it just was like lovely, right? Like we had like a very, like, here's what the boundaries are. Do everything like within the boundaries and be cool. And like, everything's great. Uh, with kids, I'd imagine it's fairly similar to the way it is with adults after a certain point. But what is the sort of like the, the kind of like training period until you kind of have those rules? Because like there are people who have in the same way, there are people who have terrible dogs. Like these dogs, no matter how old they get, they're just terrible. They hump your leg. They like do whatever <laughs> they want. They'll chew things. They're just terrible. And they're completely out of control. And there are people who have kids that are just like that. And then you see people who have kids who are like five and they're precocious and they're bright and they're well-spoken and they have their emotions very well under control. And then you see ones who have absolute maniacs like running around like crazy. 
is it the is it the environment is it the kid is it is there like a certain if you were to employ a certain kind of like for lack of a better term like training curriculum of how you parent can you be reasonably well assured that by like a kid is seven or eight that they're going to be like a pretty good kid yep <laughs> okay so that's a yes you're no? good yeah <laughs> yeah no to, i i do like the analogy of of the dog actually it's why i believe that parents need to go to parent education classes we think prenatal education is considered a responsible thing for a parent to do before they have a baby and i would like postnatal parent education to be just as a responsible act whereas most people think if you have to take a parenting class there must be something wrong with you or, or your kid like what did you do wrong yeah and i i hate that um and uh uh, so when I was starting my career, I actually got a puppy and went to dog training classes. And the first thing, Jeff, that shocked me was how much I had to pay to go to a dog training class. And I was like, yeah. okay, that is it. I am now making my parent education classes the same price as dog training because I am not going to be a speciesist. If you're going to pay this for your dog, then you can bloody well pay this for your own child. Holy cow. But in both cases, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're seeing how much it is the parent being trained to influence the dog's behavior or the child's behavior. We need the skills in order to um, socialize our children. Discipline, discipline in the, to, to teach, that, that's what the word means, disciple, to teach. And so we need to have a, a conscious roadmap um, of tools and techniques of, of guiding the child to, to integrate them into being a social creature that can get along, that knows that in our society, when you get down from the table, you take your plate and you put it in the sink and not everybody gets to be the line leader in kindergarten and all those other great things. So if you really work on those things in the first few years of life, and like I said, by, you know, usually by the time your kids are going into um, SKJK, uh, a lot of those things, a lot of that training should be done. Now, new things come up all the time, you know, having a teenager and having to talk about proper use of social media, you're going to be spending a lot of time doing what we call TTFT, take time for training, because it's a new thing they haven't had to do before, right? So new things will come up all the time. But once you kind of have a model for how you train and hand over responsibility and how you hold kids accountable for when they make mistakes or go off the rails, um, you can apply it to all kinds of different things. And the longer the kids, the kids get to know you and they say, you know, the one thing I know about my dad, Jeff, is he says what he means, he means what he says, and he follows through firm and friendly and he is reasonable and I have a voice. So you, you establish that as being like the conditions of your relationship and that will bode you so well through all the different training things that will come up along the way. This is extremely validating for me, this entire conversation, because in, in writing my book and in developing the philosophy I have around leadership, it really does feel very, very similar to how you're talking about effective parenting, which is, it's very reasonable. It's very measured. It's very uh, focused on being empathetic and connected and building a relationship with people and not being, you know, a dictator or, and not being a pushover, but being able to have like a very honest and respectful, you know, uh, uh, relationship on, on footing that's well understood. So one super validating. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting that you pointed out is, and I, I honestly, I hadn't even thought about this surprisingly, but because my wife and I are taking the, the prenatal courses now, but the, the kind of the postnatal side of it, it's really interesting because I often will um, go on and on about how it's such an injustice that people get promoted into the position of manager and then they're just expected to be good managers because they could do the thing that they did before they got promoted. And it's just nonsense. Like the skills that you need to be an effective manager and leader 
are things that you cannot just learn on the job necessarily and do effectively. And depending upon your life experience, you might actually be in a worse off position being thrust into that role. And I feel probably uh, parenting is a very similar situation. If you weren't given this, the right guidance going into that role, maybe you didn't have the right role models, maybe did, your parents didn't kind of discipline in the proper way or you know, too much carrot on the stick or too much punishment and rather than kind of the firm and friendly, you could be setting up the next generation to go through that exact same cycle. Well, to your point, my first book is called Breaking the Good Mom Myth. There are a lot of women who, you know, we've, parenting has changed. You know, women uh, aren't starting their families in, in Canada on average. The first child is at 30. So we're getting educated and then we, we want to actually go get some work experience before we settle down. And then sometimes there's fertility problems. So like we're delaying our families. By then we've had a lot of success behind us. And so here suddenly we the first feeling of failure when we have trouble conceiving and then we have this baby and it's got colic or something and it's crying. And it's like, you know, we, we think, gee, at work, you know, if I work hard, I'm fully in control and I can create output. That's all in my control. And I've got this baby and it's like, no matter what I do, it cries. And I did everything right. And it still has a rash. And you, you know, all these things that are like, yeah, you know what? Welcome to parenthood. There's a lot of stuff out of your control. You do all this stuff right and you still cry in the middle of the night. You can do so much right and you, you still have, you have to take on the reality that you are not a sculptor who is molding a shape of clay. As much as, as, much as modeling, role modeling is important, they are still their own human being and there is going to be stuff that is going to be out of your control. And yes, we're, we need to respond to it, um, not react, respond. Uh, but it's not like if you do it right once, this expectation that everything's going to be fine. So a lot of people say, I, I'm, I can run a company. I'm the CEO. I got all these employees. Why can't I do fatherhood? What, the, like I, I can't hold it together. I'm a terrible dad. And they feel horrible about this. Uh, you know, women feel terrible when they have issues with their, with their parenting. And I would just say to people, kids, because to your point, they have no social compunction. They're, they, they're, it's going to be raw. It's coming out raw. And they are going to find every one of your weaknesses, every one of your buttons, every one of your triggers. And you can decide to embrace that as a, a great gift, as an opportunity to find the places that are your growing edges as a human being. Um, or you can just get really incredibly pissed off that you don't have full control. <laughs> I would invite you to say, wow, I'm learning a lot about myself. That thing drives me nuts. Yeah. I wonder what that's about. I'm sure um, at 3 a.m. that's exactly yeah. <laughs> What the, thank you for waking me up and <laughs> crying and not getting back to sleep. This is just a wonderful learning experience. <laughs> yeah, I realize that when I do all my part and the other person doesn't do their part, I go ballistic. Yeah, um, yeah maybe I should, you know, reevaluate that given that you're six months old. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you said something that that was really interesting. It, it, I, I had a bunch of questions I wanted to ask. I feel like I could talk to you for hours upon hours about the, all of these different things. So, uh, but I had some questions kind of set aside and they're kind of coming up organically, which I really appreciate when that happens. But you had mentioned the, in the, the kind of the good mom myth, this idea that parenting has changed. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Cause I mean, when I, having worked the last decade of my life in social media, I would imagine that kids are subject to such a different environment than kids of the past. And as a result, that would make parents subject to a very different environment. At the same time, what you're talking about as it relates to the kind of like kind yet firm kind of parenting style, 
the question would be, how much has parenting really changed? I mean, if we were to take these same principles and go back in time, would they be as effective or, or is parenting something that's constantly in flux or they're sort of like kind of grounded rock solid principles that generally are going to work for bringing up a, a, a well-developed, well-rounded human being? Or is it like a totally different thing? Uh, I believe there are, from a psychological perspective, I do think that there are grounding principles in what homo sapiens need to move from infancy to um, our, our adult stature. And again, that's changed over time. To your point, the brain does grow until 25. Um, but it used to be, you know, back uh, Cleopatra, 14 years old, running her own country, considered completely competent. Um, you know, you would have we infantilize children. We, we don't allow them to individuate and get the competencies and give them responsibilities. We, we, um, we're a very pampering nation. In fact, childhood in a sense is really, and, and certainly adolescence are, are creations that didn't exist in the past. You know, if you were in the middle ages, your clothes would look just like your dad's clothes. There was none of this gur animals. There was none of these cute little frilly things. You, you wore little junior sizes of what mom and dad wore. And your bed looked like your parents' bed. You didn't have like something that looked like a race car. You know, your cutlery looked just like your parents' cutlery. You didn't have this ergonomic held stuff. So, so kids, um, you know, participated in life side by side to their mom. Their, their mom if your mom was picking berries and making bread, you would have gone with her and the sons would have gone out and gone out to, to kill the wildebeest and drag it home. And so suddenly we, we made childhood very, it looks very different. So this, this, kids don't like to be different. They, they, like I said, they want to join, they want to talk like you, walk like you, be with you. They, they want to get out of that felt inferior position they want to develop. So the sooner you can get them out of that high chair and into a chair, get them there. The sooner you can get them out of a sippy cup and using a cup, they, they want to be growing up like you. Um, and so I think that part of holding kids back and infantilizing them um, has been growing progressively worse. The helicopter, snowplow, parent, all that kind of stuff. We, we really have this low opinion of children in the sense that we think they're fragile. All that attachment theory stuff got so misunderstood by the public. Um, they think any kids who's crying that somehow we're shredding the emotional attachment and child's going to have attachment disorders. It's not true. It's not true at all. So uh, we have to stop thinking of kids as, as being fragile. And, um, and we're really asking them to join the family, not be the center of the family. And, and again, that's, that's a little harder. And we don't give them anything to do. We, basically, we say, just be smart. Go to school, be smart. We have a very narrow... Um, formula for what a successful human should be like. And right now we're told raise kids to be the next workforce. So like, God forbid, you know, if you don't have a kid who has a resume with three languages and all this extracurricular stuff and, and get them with STEM training. It, whereas before it was much more like just letting somebody mature and become themselves. And, and we had a greater faith that they're talents would find an occupation in the world. Um, and so there's a scarcity mentality, a fearful uh, mentality in parenting now. So, so I think that those, those trends change over time, but the through line of how to counter it, I think is the same. All right. So I want to run something by you and I, I need your, I need your raw unfiltered opinion on this. So I, I have the perspective that one, I am an entrepreneur. So for me to raise the next generation of like factory worker kids, it's just not going to happen. Like for me, <laughs> like screw the system, you go out and you be a real life superhero. So let's talk about how to do that. And my whole thing is like, I look at like, uh, parenting for my kid as being almost like a, a training curriculum. Like I'm going to give you all the skills you need to go out and crush it in the world. 
So on the one hand, I feel very much about like empowering my child when, when she comes into the world and giving her all the tools to do that and letting her pick and grow and do the things that, you know, help feed her passion, like the things that she's interested in. On the other hand, uh, I was not really pressed into, um, as a child, like, learning piano or learning another language or kind of like any of these very hard skills. And I think a lot of us as parents, um, uh, and I, I don't know if this is true, but I assume everyone kind of thinks about like, well, I didn't this when I was a kid, or I love this when I was a kid. And that's kind of how they form the basis of their parenting. And I, I think I had a very great childhood. But one thing I wish being the age I am now is that like, I wish I knew another language. I wish I could play an instrument. I wish uh, that I spent more time playing sports as a kid or that I, all these different things. How much should you impose certain things that you know are good for your kids or that you know are important for them to help them grow and have a better setup in life versus what is just kind of being kind of drifting back into that like autocratic authoritarian like you're gonna learn piano yeah. is that line yeah so I uh, to your point. I would say separating out needs from the wants. You know, what are we really called? What, what must we teach our kids versus what would be nice? I agree. There's all kinds of benefits for piano. It's all kinds of benefits having another second language. But are, are you going to fail as a human being if you don't have that? No. Um, so to me, I would say in my value hierarchy as a parent, I'm going to uh, try to expose you to a lot of things. Oh, you know, if you don't have a piano in your house, chances are your kid's not going to take an interest in piano. If you don't have a paint set in your house, chances are they're not going to know anything about painting. You know, I mean, look at different cultures around the world. You know, we don't, we don't have a lot of archery happening on our street, you know, I mean, um, whatever, you know? Um, so, so I think we need to expose our kids and see what they're interested in in and, and be encouraging when they do take an interest. And, um, you know, I think that when we have a good relationship, we might even say, yeah, sometimes it's discouraging when it, when you don't learn fast enough. And, you know, all those people that play piano, it's because they really put in the time and the hours. And, but, you know, I don't know, if, I don't know how much your interest and how much you want to push through the dry spells. I, I don't know how that's going to be for you. And I might say, well, you know what, why don't you just finish out this, you know, we've already paid your lessons till the end of the year. Why don't we just finish up what we've committed to or, but as soon as it starts, it's getting into a fight where it's actually hurting my relationship, then I'm going to say to myself, is my child's, you know, the, 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 the attribute of having a piano playing child, does that trump having a bad relationship with your parent because you fight? Yeah. So I am not, I, I, I would take it so far as I would try to use my influence. I might, I'm, you know, might try to push them through a dry spell. I might, but then I'm like, I am not going to give up my relationship over piano. And the thing, and you'll find that the kids, like, I don't know, my, my, my daughter didn't, one didn't really like piano, but my other daughter was like, okay, could you stop with the guitar enough already? <laughs> like when you bump into something where it's a passion, you, it will be unrelenting. You'll see it. They'll just, they just love it, you know? And there's lots of other things that are, they'll, they'll find lots of other things to be passionate about. Yeah. I get that because I'm, a, I'm like, I've been like a, a passion driven person since I was a kid. So like, I've always had like a thing I'm interested in when I'm in, I'm like all in on it. But I do feel like there were times throughout my life, I probably didn't push through some of the the downturns. So maybe it's just a matter of like being a little bit more uh, involved at that stage when it feels like, um, you know, and, and I think kind of to your point, like when I think about like wants versus needs, at the end of the day, if my kid can like speak English and feed itself, like I feel like we've taken care of most of it. Like uh, people can really survive on a, a pretty bare minimum of things. So when I put it in that context, I think like, well, is 
any of the stuff I want them to do really that important? Is it a need? So I don't know. It's tough because it's, it's like you have to find out where that line is for you of, of what's really important to push on and, and to try and make your case and influence for. I also think that when we give, when we realize that people are different and have different interests and, and whatever, that um, um, when you allow a child to try something and then decide they don't like it, they're actually more likely to try something else. Whereas if you make them sign up and they hate piano lessons and they hate it and you make them stick it out and then you say, would you like to try swimming lessons? They're like, God, no. What if I get in the pool, I don't like it, and then you make me do this for seven years? So I think it, I think it increases the likelihood to say, hey, look, we all try things. You know, We'll look, we'll see, we'll try, we'll get out. I think that's that experimentative, iterative kind of brain process that I want. But if you've got a kid who like, it's not uncommon, for example, for firstborn kids, like they tend to not like team sports. This is going back into personality development because yeah. you know what's going on there? A lot of them, it's like, I don't want to be letting down the whole team if I let you know, if you kick the soccer ball to me and I don't make the goal, I don't want everybody getting upset. But if it's actually me playing tennis and I don't lob it over the net, then that's just on me. Nobody pays the price but me. So that's like a personality thing. And so part of it is like learning your kid. And, you know, some kids don't like loud, erratic things. And so you got to find environments where they're going to shine. And it may not be whatever, in a public school with like 28 kids in a chaotic classroom, they might need a, you know, I, I've got kids that go to outdoor schools because they just need to burn energy. And, um, you know, so we try to find a fit between who they are authentically and with their temperament and their interests and how to let that blossom, right? Yeah. As an only child, what you're saying is making perfect sense because I am very much a uh, solo sport player, even in team sports. I choose like the field general position where it's like I get to like call the shots and be that guy. So uh, it's all it's all really resonating. Yeah. And, and, you know, even in school, they're like, oh, I don't want to work on, on a project with this person because, you know, I like things my way. And what if they don't do their work and I don't want my mark to go down because they and I don't know, my daughter, she'd just do the everything for everybody so that she could just get the mark she wanted. Just like yeah. I'll just do the project on elephants. Then <laughs> yeah, I know it's covered. Back. It'll be fine. Yeah, I'm smart. I got this. So uh, pivoting to uh, kind of a slightly different topic, but uh, obviously still within the context of parenting, I'm curious about how you deal with this. I know how I deal with it in leadership, but I'm curious how you deal with it in parenting. How do you have difficult conversations with kids, specifically around things that may be a little too mature for them, but Maybe they need to know about, like, I'm thinking right now we're dealing with a global pandemic. How does one talk to a child about things like death or coronavirus or how, like, climate change without, like, totally screwing the kid up in their early stages of life, but about making them aware or having a conversation when it needs to happen so they know what's going on? Like, how do you deal with difficult conversations with your kids? And I'm sure it probably is different at different ages. Like when they're in their teens, it's probably a different conversation than when they're like, you know, just learning to talk or they're in their, you know, early, you know, five to 10. Yeah. So what's, the, what's the kind of overarching way that you tend to approach it? So first thing is, is honesty. Um, you need to be honest and factual because if your kids find out that you're telling them a cleaned up, twisted version, um, then they suddenly think, well, what else have you told me that maybe is not true because you were trying to emotionally caretake me? So um, I would say be factual. Um, you know, grandpa, when he dies, he's not sleeping. You have kids who are like afraid to go to sleep because they think death is like sleep. Like you have to be accurate, you have to be truthful. But to your point about being age 
um, age appropriate, um, the level of detail. I, I think of it as like a windscreen, like how much information you want to let through. It's all going to be factual, but you can let a lot more information through. You can widen the holes and let more information pour through to somebody who's a teenager who really has the capacity and wants to ask more challenging questions than somebody who's quite young. And um, so you limit, you limit the details, but what details get through, you, you make sure are accurate. And I think the other thing is also to, because kids are really, uh, it's fascinating, they, they really don't understand that when you say, tell me what you've come to hear about the coronavirus, and, and then when they say, well, I understand that people are dying because they eat bat soup. And, um, and now if you touch someone, you'll die. And you'll say, okay, I'm glad we, I'm glad we talked. As a matter of fact, that, that's, that's not true. Um, it has nothing to do with bat soup. It has to do with transmission of certain, whatever. And then you give your age appropriate, whatever. And then you can kind of correct what they know in that small. And a lot of what they're doing is looking at you and saying, am I safe? And when you're calm and you're collected, and they know, well, if the big people in my life aren't scared about this, then I'm not scared about this. And I think the other thing too, whenever we're talking about big subjects is always to focus on the, the other elements of positivity. So, you know, I was teaching Sunday school when 9-11 happened and we, we spent a lot of time talking to the kids, not about the people who perished, but about the um, incredible human support that neighbors and firefighters and how that, you know, for this one moment of tragedy, what we, uh, of some people that weren't thinking like we were that the rest of humanity had a pro-social response to it. And, you know, yes, we can think about the people that are, that are sick, but think about all the people that are helping their neighbors and all the people that are uh, making a conscious effort to social distance and use their Purell and look at all the good things. Look at how much more we know about germs and how many more machines we have for measuring things than a hundred years ago. And so the goods and, and the positives and anytime you can move a child into action is also helpful so would you like to write a card would you like to make a donation would you like to you know anything that is that turns the thinking into process action is it, it gives a kid a, a child a sense of agency they don't feel so victimless to their world situation i think that makes sense um i like the windscreen analogy um I mean, the reason I asked the question is I remember when I first asked my dad about death, and my dad was a funeral director, which interesting little fun part to that story. But I was watching um, a Superman show or movie, and I had this realization when Krypton blew up that like all those people died, and then I was like, people die, and I was, and I had this whole conversation. And I remember it being like a very traumatic event for me, like in a, a the fact that I can remember it at like the fact that I was like three or four years old. I remember that being like a really serious thing. I like the. Um, the emphasis on honesty. I think that's super important and actually made me think of, um, I remember at one point when I was a kid, I, uh, I lied to my dad and he, it, it clear, he gave me like the disappointed and I will never forget. That. And I remember that being the day where I was like, I will never lie again. I will be an honest person forever. How important or how useful do you see something like guilt or shame as um, I don't like he didn't he didn't lay it on thick or anything. It was just kind of like I felt an immense amount of like guilt and shame at that moment. In parenting, do you think that that has a value? And then if you map that onto leadership, do you think that there's a value there as well? Uh, I I don't think there is. Um, I think it is unadvisable to use shaming another person. That I'll say that that um, that when people feel uh, shamed. Um, it eats at their self-worth. Um, there's other problems with it. Now, that is not to say that um, 
when we have a strong relationship, well, I would say the, the alternative to that is to have a strong relationship whereby you want the other person to hold you in good regard and high regard, to value you, to see you as a, as a, you know, a good functioning person, you know, that we, that they admire you. Kids want their parents to, to reflect back that they, that they're valued, that they're loved. And they themselves are very upset when they have done something that is out of the character that might hurt that relationship. So I would say usually the kids, that feeling of disappointment, that feeling of being ashamed, that is self-generated. The parent doesn't need to add to it. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I, don't, I don't need to shame you when I find out that you stole something from the store, but I might say like, wow, I'm really curious because you, know you know what I know about you? you know, you're, you're a great kid and you have a good sense of right and wrong and, and you really stepped outside the moral boundary. I want to understand that. They are they're like, nothing in what I just said was shaming. Shaming would yeah. be like, you know, you reprobate, you know, I can't trust you for a minute. You know, who do you think you are? That's shaming. I don't need to, I don't need to add that in order for a child to sort of say, oops, I've created, I've created this, this gap, this distance. Uh, I've, I've, I've let people down. I, you know, I don't like how I felt. All right. So I guess last question is um, the, we've talked a lot about being straightforward about being like on the same page, talking about influencing kids. Um, what is your, and, and this is like kind of one thing I want to wrap up on just because I'm a very big believer in like motivating people and inspiring people and all that sort of good jazz. And as, uh, when I was a kid, I was kind of given the whole, like, uh, you can do anything you set your mind to kind of speech. And I think the, the reality of the world is that it's a much crueler and much more harsh place than if you feel like you can do it, you can. Um, what would you say is kind of the best approach to take in terms of talking to your kids about their potential and their ability to grow into whatever they want to be? Oh, okay. Big question. This could be a whole other podcast right here. Okay. Well, let, we'll do the short one and then I'll invite you yeah. back to parenting part two. So um, this is a really important concept. Most parents think that since we're not going to use the punishments, um, that, uh, that in order to motivate, we got to do this positive stuff. And what ends up happening is a lot of parents and teachers, it's, it's the tapes in our heads. We've learned to talk to children in the positive is we tend to praise them good boy, good girl, you got this. Da, da, da. Um, oh, you got an A. Praise is actually problematic. Praise says that I am the authority figure who is judging you. And now, thankfully, I'm judging you in a fairly, I'm, I'm saying good things, you're, you're, you're doing fine. But it still says that in life, there is a scale and that your human worth is based on what you do, what you produce, what your output, and I'm going to evaluate it. And when it hits a certain mark that I deem, I will give you validation. And so that feeling of measurement being measuring up is exhausting. It means kids then confuse that when I don't measure up, you know, they, you know, if it's good, better, best, I know a B means less than an A, and now you're going to love me less because A's are more lovable, A's are better. And so when they tie their worth to their achievement, it, 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 it might work for a little while, but it creates anxiety, or they think they're only as good as the last good thing they did. And certainly if you're a C and you're struggling, you can't even get a C plus. Well, if A's the only thing that's important, you just give up all, you figure out, I'll never make it. Why try it all? Um, so that's the trouble with praise. The, the alternative and what I teach parents about is how to actually be, be an encouraging parent. Encouragement replaces praise. Some of the research will use different language. They'll say praise for effort versus praise for perfection. 
or completion. So to be encouraging is to constantly be messaging to our kids, not just in language, but in our behaviors, um, that we that they are already all they need to be, that there is no judgment. It's, an, it's a radical, unconditional love. And so I can still comment on your progress. I can still comment on your effort, but that's what's important. It's the, the grit, the persistence, the sticking to it. And I'm not waiting for you to, 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 to hit the final A before I give you the gold star of my love and recognition, um, which is super important because, you know, if you have three kids and you send them all upstairs to go make their beds before breakfast, the older one has more experience. Their bed's going to look better than the little four-year-old who's still trying to figure out their motor skills. And if you own, and they, they're smart, they, they look, they see the two beds, they know their bed's wrinkling, looks like crap. If all we talk about is whose bed looks nice, that little four-year-old's going to get discouraged. But if the four-year-old could have spent three times as much time getting their bed to look that messy. So I want to focus on you worked so hard. You know, yesterday you couldn't even get the, the pillows lined up and today you've already got it. So just focus on effort and improvement and you will eventually get to those great levels of mastery. But when we start telling kids that, you, you know, you got to be up here with your potential, those kids where it doesn't come easy, where it doesn't come fast, where mistakes are fail, personal failures, they just shut right down. Got it. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You are truly a parenting expert. <laughs> uh, wonderful yeah. to talk to you. I feel like, um, you know, the, this podcast for me has been kind of a selfish gesture because I get to ask you all these questions before my baby comes. But um, I think it's been really, really um, helpful to kind of like mirror and map it onto leadership and all these other different topics. So thank you so much for setting aside the time. I know you're a busy lady and I, uh, I really appreciate you coming onto the show and sharing all of your, uh, your wisdom and your, your experience with us. Um, it's super helpful. So for all the parents out there, I hope that you enjoyed this and you should go and look up Allison. Uh, now is the time in the show where I just want to give you a, a moment to just let people know where they can go and find you and be social sure. where they can pick up your books or anything else you want to promote. This is your time in the show. Ah, thank you. Well, so my, uh, my three books are uh, Breaking the Good Mom Myth, Honey, I Wrecked the Kids, and Ain't Misbehaving. They're all on my website. Um, uh, I mean, they're all linked to independent booksellers and Amazon and you know, all the places you can get it there with HarperCollins, but through my website, which is um, allisonshafer.com, spelled A-L-Y-S-O-N-S-C-H-A-F-E-R. You'll probably put it in the show notes. Um, and on website has the links to all my handles. Everything's branded under my name, Allison Schaefer. I also have a series of YouTube videos with lots of um, short, digestible parenting tips. Um, so, you know, if you don't want to invest in, in reading a full book or, you know, plowing through some longer formats, you know, two minute video, one minute Instagram story. I got lots of video content for parents um, and always love to get your questions so that I can create more content to help parents. So find me there and it'll, it'll send you out to all the places that I'm putting out content. Awesome. Well, as an about to be brand new parent, I just picked up a, a copy of, um, it, it was the book that you told me to pick up. I think it's the, the good mom myth or breaking the good mom myth. I think that's was, a starter one. So I picked up that one. I just, I checked out a bunch of your YouTube videos. Everyone should go check them out. It's awesome. Everything will be in the show notes. Uh, so this show, uh, was brought to you by me, Jeff Gibbard of shareable. And I would say that if I had to call this episode, anything, I would probably say that it was shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me please? Okay, if you enjoy Shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. 
The third way that you could support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing, shareable.fm, where this podcast is hosted. Do you have a podcast or know someone that has a podcast that you think is particularly, I don't know, shareable? Well, send them to shareable.fm to apply to be on the network. Shows that are selected not only get added to the site and in some cases to the Shareable FM radio podcast, but we also bring together the best tips, tricks, and tactics for promoting your show and growing listenership. And for our headliner and feature shows, we provide fully outsourced social advertising support. So leave the uh, promotion to us, okay? So give it a look, and if you want to find some new and interesting shows, or if you just want additional exposure for your own show, or know someone who would benefit, please let them know about it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Shareable. I sincerely appreciate it, and this show would mean absolutely nothing without you, the listener. So thank you, and I hope to see you back for the next one. Goodbye for now. <laughs>